Okay, everybody, we are ready to get started. Hope you enjoyed this little pre-Thanksgiving warm-up meal. Get your uh, your stomach stretched for this coming Thursday. Um, yeah, so we're gonna jump right into the lesson today because we are at probably I would say the most important chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, but this one probably is legitimately the most important chapter. If you're looking for chapters that the New Testament authors appeal to or have in mind, this is probably at the top. If other than maybe the, the chapter with the Shema, this might be it. Um, this is Deuteronomy 30. And this study, those of you, I don't know if you, <clears throat> those of you that are here actually follow along on the website, uh, the podcast or the YouTube videos, but the name, I, I name each of these studies. And this study is named Deuteronomy, the heart of God's people. And it's because, yes, Deuteronomy is kind of the, the, the culmination of Torah, and Torah is like at the heart of who Israel is. But it's more than that. It's actually, Deuteronomy is God trying to speak to the heart of God's people, to their hearts. And this chapter is, is pretty laden, heavy laden with that theme. We, if you were here last week, <clears throat> Moses is, they're, they're doing the, the vow renewal ceremony. This is the chance for the new generation to basically renew the wedding vows that God made with their parents at Mount Sinai. And so they're, they're kind of taking on the identity now. It's like they've grown up under, out in the wilderness, under the law, but now they're actually taking it upon themselves as the new generation that is about to step foot into the promised land. And so they're having this ceremony, and it's a ceremony where God, is, where Moses has gathered all the people around Mount Nebo, and they're looking out, and, they're, and you know, I mentioned this before, I, I was there this uh, spring, and you can look out from Mount Nebo and see all of the promised land. I mean, it's amazing, on a clear day, you can see almost all of the land of Israel. And they're seeing that, and, and Moses is giving them the charge of what they're gonna go in to do. And if we came to the point where they entered into the, the covenant stipulations where the person who's making the covenant, the greater power or the lesser power, would say, now here, the, here are your stipulations. Here's what you have to live by. Here are the terms of the contract, so to speak. And then the people would take upon themselves the contract and sign their name to it, basically uh, saying, yes, if we break the covenant, if we don't do the things that we are agreeing to, then may these curses come upon us. And all of last chapter, uh, the past two, three weeks, we've seen just the heavy, heavy curses that God's pronouncing that his people are willingly taking upon themselves if they stray from the covenant. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that the people are going to stray from the covenant. And so you would expect then for when they do stray for it to be over, done. We've seen in the law when Israel, when a man divorces his wife in Israel, they were not ever allowed to remarry that same uh, spouse. It was done. It was over for good. So you would expect that as an Israelite, if God, if you break the wedding vows as a people and God divorces you symbolically, religiously, covenantally speaking, that that's it, that it's over. You might as well go find another God to worship because Yahweh is done. And in that, that would be expected in the ancient Near East, but in that culture, God in Deuteronomy 30 now turns the corner because in 29, he's predicted what's going to happen when they do break the covenant and these curses do come upon them. In Deuteronomy 29, it reads basically like Israel's history written in advance, so much so that some scholars have said, oh, it had to have been written long after the time because it's too accurate. Um, now we turn to Deuteronomy 30, and there's always the message of redemption after judgment in the Old Testament. That's a theme of the prophets. 
judgment is always followed by redemption. And it is always contingent upon repentance. And the whole purpose of the judgment, the whole purpose of the prophets coming and speaking and giving these harsh words is so that, one, the people won't go down that path. But two, if they do go down that path, <clears throat> that when they come to their senses, their descendants come to their senses, they won't, real, they, won't, they won't think that it's completely over. That there's always the prodigal father waiting on the porch for the son to return. And so that's the image Jesus picked up on. He was very big on it. <clears throat> he didn't make it up. It, well, Jesus made up very little, uh, completely new. You know, his teaching went against the grain of a lot of Old Testament teaching at the time, but it was the, how the Old Testament had been uh, interpreted at the time, not the actual message of Torah. Jesus' words are surprisingly uh, correspondent to what we read in Torah. And it should, make no, uh, should be no surprise because he was the Old Testament prophet par excellence. He was the epitome of the prophets. He was the one whom all of the prophets were a foreshadowing. So Deuteronomy 30 then, after this is after the punishments of the curses of chapter 29 have come to pass. All the stuff we talked about last week, cannibalism and all that, you know, if you missed the weeks, you missed some really good stuff. Check the podcast or the uh, videos because it was quite vivid. But now we're turning to a corner where after the people have been scattered and they've been dispersed, they've been vomited out of the land, so to speak, and they're in, in the diaspora all over the world, wherever they are. We read in chapter 30, when all these words, NIV doesn't say words, it leaves out the word words, it just says all these blessings and curses, but literally the Hebrew says when all these words, these blessings and curses, so the, the effects of the curse, when all these words, these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, Think, how, listen for how many times the word heart and the concept of heart is going to be in this chapter. And you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Pattern is, once you're scattered, after these curses have happened, then when you do what? Return to the Lord your God. Repentance. What does that bring? What does that mean? It means then God will bring you back. This is the pattern Deuteronomy sets. Repentance must precede restoration. God will not bring back an unrepentant people. He does not force anybody into his good graces. Repentance precedes. This is very important in the, in the whole how people interpret history. From, from the scattering of the Jews throughout the world or persecution of Christians in the early church or, or, or individual wanderings into sin. Um, th this concept is pretty rooted in Deuteronomy and then explained or built upon throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Repentance comes first. Did the, did the father on the porch run and get the son from the pigsty and bring him back? No. But as soon as he saw the son from a distance making his way back, then he ran to greet him. 
See, that's the balance, is the repentance is necessary, but it's never enough. It's not the thing that saves. It's the necessary condition that then the Father can come and bring the Son back in. Can meet Him and wrap the robe around Him and put the ring on His finger and kill the fatted calf for a feast and all this stuff from the imagery that Jesus told. What's the same thing here? The, the repentance will proceed, must proceed the restoration of Israel as a national people. Is That's a great question to ask. You know, when people look at the, the state of Israel today and they go, oh, God's bringing all the Jews back. It's, it's happening, it's happening. And, and this chapter kind of raises a hand and says, wait a minute, wait, wait, where, where's the, wait, where's the repentance part and the turning to Torah and the turning to Messiah? Uh, and that's a question that Christians debate, Jews debate, Zionists debate. Debate it yourselves as you think about it, work through the issues. But the text is what it's saying is what it's saying. That before there's the ultimate restoration, whatever that looks like and whatever it means, of God bringing his people back from being scattered. And whenever that happened, whether we're still waiting on it or some Christians say, no, he did that in the AD or the BC era. So that's already passed. Those are where you can have fun letting the text inform your theology and then letting that inform your, your politics and your ethics and your geopolitics and all that. The text itself is very very clear and it's so clear this entire paragraph verses uh, 1 through verses 10 are a chiasm they're a, they're a perfect chiasm where A, B, C, D C, B, A in other words each point corresponds and so verses uh, <clears throat> it's, it's, I mean I could lay it out if we had a visual thing I could show you in my Bible it's I put color, color coding so you can see the chiasm but just note that this section, the first point corresponds to the end. The second point corresponds to the next to the last. And then the middle point is this verse right here, which we're about to read. Verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. And that word is seed. We should all be familiar with that by now if you've been in this study. So that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. And that's the culmination of this whole section is God will circumcise the heart. What does that mean? The, the, the Septuagint actually translated this because circumcision was a, 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 a very Jewish metaphor. And in the Septuagint, maybe because it was composed in a larger Gentile context, but it says uh, God will purge or cleanse your heart when they, when they translated this into Greek. The Hebrew is God will circumcise your heart, which circumcision is you snip off the little end or the child's eight days old. Um, but that's the symbolic of God will get rid of the thing that keeps them from following his law from the heart. But that is contingent on turning to the Lord in repentance. See, repentance is the first step. It never, repentance is not enough. And repentance can't mean, can't uh, enable righteousness. Only grace can enable righteousness. And that's what it says here. God will do the operation. God, not you. You will not circumcise your own heart. God will circumcise your heart. This is a new thing. This is a new, this is the first hint of what is expanded later in the prophets. Jeremiah 36, I mean, I mean Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will put a new heart in you. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will move you to follow my decrees, to walk in my ways. These are promises that the later cup prophets 
after this exile stuff had happened, and the prophets are like, no, this is what's going to happen. God's keeping his promise in Deuteronomy. If you return, if you repent, if you, if you cry out to God, then he will put in his, uh, will, will give you a heart transplant. And as the metaphor in Deuteronomy, he'll circumcise your heart. This is all, this is what the entire New Testament is, is uh, shown to reveal. That's what Jesus comes to do, is finally now God's spirit will go into people, not just dwell among them, or empower them every now and then, but will actually dwell within them. And so there will be this ability to obey from the heart what previously sin had hardened. So this is all, um, Deuteronomy 30 is like, like, um, like foreshadowing of the entire New Testament. And that's why the New Testament authors, particularly, again, I've said it, Paul, in Romans 9 through 11, Deuteronomy 29 and 30 is his key text that he has in mind when he's talking about everything from the future of Israel and Gentiles coming in but Jews rejecting Jesus and what's he doing and how's it all going to be restored and who is Israel and who is not and, and, and what's the purpose of the gospel. All of that in 9 through 11 of chapter of Romans is this is swirling in the background. What Deuteronomy has said from the very beginning. Repent after the God's punishment has come, after his curses have fallen. If you repent, he will restore and he will more than just restore you back to where you were. He will actually go deeper and give you a new heart. That's the call of the gospel. So then the, the, the chiasm works its way back out. Everything that it just said in the previous two, two verses, it, it reiterates again. So verse 7, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands I'm giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in all the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your land. Those were the things that were all cursed in the last chapter. <laughs> the Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your fathers. As we just said in a couple of verses above about the land that belonged to your fathers. And then he works his way back out. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. There's a common caricature of Old Testament faith that cropped up around the time of maybe later in Augustine, but certainly by the time of Martin Luther. He took it and ran with it. That the Jews believed that you had to earn your salvation by keeping the law. No Jew ever believed that you had to earn your salvation by keeping the law. That is a Christian slander that was popular in the medieval period or in the Renaissance and the time of the Reformation, but it's simply not true. No Jew ever believed that keeping the law was how you earned your salvation. So when you read Paul and he's talking about the law and, it, and the, you know, no man will be justified by works of the law, and this, he's not talking about, well, Jews think you have to earn your salvation by keeping the law. What he's talking about is what the law can do in, far, in so far as taking somebody into holiness. And he's saying, no, no, the law is not going to, can't justify anybody. Because that was never the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was never to make someone right with God. The purpose of the law, the law is given to God's covenant people, Israel, who are already made right with God. They've already been come out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea, brought into the promised land. The law then is how they live in response to the salvation that God sovereignly enabled. 
And so it's a caricature that's plagued the church for centuries. You'll even find it in study Bibles. You hear preachers teach it all the time. And it's honestly, it's based on sloppy reading of the Old Testament, if any, combined with a few passages in the New Testament read through a certain lens, usually through Martin Luther. But it's not true. It's an error. Jews never believe the law is how we earn our salvation. They always believe the law we keep because we have been saved. And that's what the prophets constantly call people back to. Return. Return to the law. Return to Torah. Torah is the way. The word Torah means to point. It comes from the verb Yarah, which means to point. And Torah is pointing them to the God who created them and pointing the way in which they should walk, which is by following God from the heart. Because the second misconception that, that was popular among Protestant Christians is that Jews believe that you just keep the rules and that you're okay with God. Jews never believed that. That was, that was a bastardization of Old Testament faith. The Hebrew scriptures always taught faith is from the heart. Faith is an inward thing, not external rule keeping. And God says over and over and over, I don't care if you keep the rules. I don't care how many sacrifices you make. I don't care how many times you pray. I don't care how much you give to the temple. I want your heart. So if your heart is not following me, then get your songs away from me. They're noise in my ears. I despise your gifts. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your sacrifices. These are the messages that the prophets would say to Israel over and over and over. Not because God doesn't want things like singing and sacrifices and offerings, but because he only wants them when they come from a heart that's his. And so the notion again, well, the Jews, they believed in works righteousness. No, that's not the case. That's a bad false Christian stereotype that should have been put to rest a long time ago. The, the Jews did not believe that. They believed, if you read the text, the teaching of Torah was obey God from the heart, not just with your actions, but from your heart, because he is the God of our salvation, and we are his covenant people, and this is how we live in response to his grace. So it's a whole new way for some people of looking at the Old Testament, but it's crucial to keep in mind so that we don't misread and read back into the Old Testament things that they never actually believed. From the beginning, it was all about the heart. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Right here in the center of the chiasm, at the heart of the book of Deuteronomy, at the culmination of this covenant ratification ceremony. So if, if you walk away from here today, I want you to remember one thing. Well, one, the food was good. You can remember that. And I'll get you to come back. But two, remember that God has always, Jesus did not come up with a new thing when he taught people to love God from the heart rather than keeping external rules. He was not reinventing anything. He was calling people back to Torah. He was doing what Deuteronomy 30 promised long in advance that would happen enabling the whole circumcision of the heart to happen. Right now, it's just a promise it's going to happen, but it never says how. The prophets later, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, they'll build on it. They'll talk about kind of the how. Then the New Testament will come and be like, boom, here's how. Here's how it works. So that's what we get, the unfolding of the biblical theology throughout Scripture. But it starts all the way back in Torah, which is why we have taken five and a half years at this Bible study to read through the books of Torah, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so that you have that foundation that you then, when you turn and read the New Testament, you're like, oh, this, I see it. I see what he's doing. It's something bigger than I ever thought. It's more than just Jesus is coming so I can die and go to heaven. He's, no, he's fulfilling this entire storyline that God has put in place since Genesis 1 
that's been unfolding throughout the ages of God's peoples and their zigs and their zags and their falls and their rises and all of this. And then Jesus comes on the scene and is just like, bam, hey, it's all about me, guys. It's all about me. And you look at it and you're like, holy moly, it is all about me. And in ways that are far more subtle than just a proof text here and a prediction there. He's enabling, he's embodying the entire storyline of the Old Testament. So the more we know the storyline of the Old Testament, the better you know Jesus. That's why we study the Old Testament. It is God's word. Jesus told his disciples he only did Bible studies with them from the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't even around until long after he was dead. So keep this in mind. Um, dead and then resurrected, obviously. Just making sure you guys come. <laughs> so it uh, goes on. Verse 11. Moses says, Now, what I'm commanding you today, and this is a, this, this passage will ruffle some feathers if you got your theology ducks in a row and, and you have a systematic thing laid out, but just let the verse say what it says because what it says is pretty monumental. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Moses is saying this to Israel. Hey, guys, I'm not telling you to do something you can't do. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. You know, some of the gods of the ancient Near East, their secrets of living and holiness and righteousness and life and prosperity were like hidden in heaven. So you'd have to go up Mount Olympus or, you know, go ascend into the heavens and get it from the storm gods themselves or, or get a messenger from heaven to give it to you. You know, it was just, it was out of reach. The, the key to life, the teaching to, to live and to prosper was out of reach. It was up in heaven somewhere. Or, nor, verse 13, is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may be, obey it. You know, if you think of the, um, if you think of the, um, what's his name, uh, Gilgamesh, the Gilgamesh epic. You know, Gilgamesh defined the key of life, to the, the, the knowledge of truth and life and everything, to, to, to overcome death of his friend Enkidu. Uh, he had to cross the sea. He, and that's where he met the, the Babylonian version of Noah, a guy named Wittnapishtim, and he told him all about, you know, all these mysteries and this and that. And, and Gilgamesh's quest eventually was kind of a futile one anyway. But the ancient religions, the, the worldview at the time was the truth is either so far up there that only a special holy person can ever hope to grasp it. Or it's beyond the sea, somewhere so far away that only a, a special hero can go and, and bring it back to us. And what say, Moses is saying is none of that's true. Rather, verse 14, note, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and on your heart so that you may obey it. The word, you've been given what you need to obey it. Obey it. It's extorting the people. You don't have to. It's not these secret mysteries that you have to ponder the universe for. It's right here. It's the covenant on these tablets that I'm putting before you. That you're to recite day and night. That you're to teach your kids. That you're to live by. You live this way. This is how you have life. So he says, verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity and death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God walk in his ways and keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your hearts turn away and you're not obedient and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you today you will certainly be destroyed 
you will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day, and here's the end of the ceremony, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life, death, blessings, curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and you may love the Lord your God and listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. He will give you many years in the land. He swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The whole raison d'etre, the whole reason for Israel's existence is that they would do these L words, that they would love, that they would listen, and that they would be loyal. If you need an old 1980s bullet point sermon, there it is, with alliteration and everything. They would love, they would listen, and they'd be loyal. That's the culmination of the covenant. If they do that, then the fourth L, then they will live. That'll preach. Any of you guys are going out for a sermon. There you go. There's your bullet points. But the whole point of it, God telling the people is this. This is what I want of you. Love me. That's, the, that's the, what the covenant starts with. Love the Lord your God. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Doesn't matter how good you are to your neighbor. It doesn't matter how ethically upright you live your life. If you don't love God, if you give your devotion to some other God, you've already missed it. So love the Lord your God. Listen to His commands. Be loyal to Him. And His commands that you listen to doesn't just mean hear. It means actually do it. Obey it. And the commands are then love your neighbor as yourself. That was from Leviticus. Jesus didn't make it up. You know, care for the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, the elderly. All of the things that Deuteronomy has been reiterating. This is the heart of the covenant. This is, this is their entire reason of being. The entire reason God's bringing Israel into existence and putting them right there in that land is so that in the midst of all the pagan nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Hittites, the Egyptians, all of the Edomites, the, the, you know, all of them, that Israel would live in love and loyalty to the Lord. If they do that, then all those nations would come to know, to see, would witness what it's like to have a relationship with the Lord and would be drawn to it. That's the plan of the Old Testament. And, cool thing, that's the exact same plan in the New Testament. That's the whole point of the gospel when Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded you. The whole purpose is so that by spreading the gospel, by living lives in devotion to the Lord, in devotion to the neighbor, love for God, love for neighbor, that that then will get people to see what it looks like when, when somebody has a living relationship with the Lord and not just following dead rituals or practices or this and that. So Deuteronomy is the gospel. Uh, my friend Daniel Block, he's an Old Testament scholar at Wheaton, and he wrote a, a thick commentary on Deuteronomy, a two-volume commentary on Ezekiel, and he, he calls Deuteronomy the gospel of Moses because it is the gospel in advance. It's